No, we're not going to watch the rest of the movie. No! So ridiculous! You know, you, you want to watch the rest of the movie because of that extraordinary and beautiful scene, and we, we all know so much more uh, of what is to come out of that scene. Uh, because that scene is moving, and it, I'm sure it was very moving the very first time you watched it if you've seen the movie Narnia. So here's the thing, right? We forget sometimes, though, that the very first time we saw the movie, or even now, that as Lucy is pulling that sheet from that wondrous and magical wardrobe, that we know something she doesn't. You see, we think she knows what we know. I suspect the first time you saw the movie, like me, you had either read the book or you had watched the preview. So you knew the wardrobe was awesome, right? But Lucy didn't know that. When she pulled the sheet back, all she knew was that this was an awesome wardrobe in which she could hide in a game of hide-and-go-seek that would be the best hiding place in the entire house. She had no idea that as she got into that wardrobe, it would turn out to be a doorway into a wondrous and magical world in which she and her brothers and sisters would discover realities and truths about life that they could never have imagined to be true. Okay, so we know that she didn't. C.S. Lewis, the author of the book Narnia, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the, the books that come, uh, wrote this story on a backdrop that we often forget. See, we just kind of start at the wardrobe, but the story doesn't start at the wardrobe. It starts in London during a time of horrid war where it got so bad and people were bombing the city of London so much that the reality that the children who are in the story might die in London became perfectly real. And so the parents sent the children into the countryside to escape the raw reality and ugliness of our humanity, to escape war and death and fragility and go to a place where they would be relatively safe. It is on that backdrop that C.S. Lewis brings the wardrobe into the story and thus the magical world of Narnia in which such wondrous truths are waiting to be discovered. This story that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote is an allegory, a picture of your life and my life. That's why he wrote it. It's not just a fantasy story. It is a story that holds in it reality that affects and ties back to who we are as individuals. The struggle we face in the everyday life that we live, in the realities, the raw realities of humanity, the fragility of humanity, the ugliness that comes with our warring against one another in almost every relationship we have at some point and being able to recognize that there is so much more to our story than what meets the eye. And C.S. Lewis captures this in the beautiful books that he writes. 
But his story is not just a picture of your life and my life. It is also a picture of our human story, the whole story. C.S. Lewis writes this book, uh, these books, to give us a picture in this wonderful world of, of, of uh, extraordinary things as he sh- uh, paints a picture of who we are and the story God wrote for us. Because C.S. Lewis, like many of us, have discovered, had discovered, the revelation of God in Scripture as to what our story really was. And, and here's where our story unfolds. Okay, here's how it goes. According to the revelation God gave us, we, the human race, were created in an extraordinary place with an extraordinary purpose and an extraordinary life, right? We were created in what we know as the Garden of Eden, a place where we would experience the full freedom of God and all of creation. We were in right relationship with God without restriction or corruption, so we could experience Him fully without any obstacle. And in that experience, we had the full experience of His freedom that knowing Him would bring us. Out of that freedom, we were purposed, created to reflect that freedom, to reflect that wonder of God, His character, to all other human beings and to all of creation, as creation reflects his wonder, his invisible qualities, his power back to us. That was our life, and it was intended to be our whole story, except for the fact that it is clear in Scripture that God's enemy and ours came to us and convinced us, our early ancestors, that pursuing our own story our own divinity, and writing the thing ourselves was a much better plan than trusting God's story for us. He said, if you know what he knows, you can be like him, and he's tricking you to try to keep you controlled by holding authority over you and not letting you know what he knows. God knew that if we entered into that seeming divinity, we would not find divinity, we would find death. Because into our story, corruption and death would come. Our ancestors ate of the fruit of good and evil, and in that experienced corruption and death. It came into them, and it has haunted the human story ever since. After Adam and Eve experienced that, we quickly watched the human story uh, sink down into a place where we were warring against one another. Warring so much against one another that we come to a point early in the human story where it says all of the human beings on the planet were filled with such evil and hatred that they were essentially murdering each other, trying to kill each other. So God, in His mercy, gives us a brand new start of sorts, not completely brand new by completely starting from scratch, but He takes Noah and his family He brings him out and he rescues us from our own inevitable self-destruction. There would be no human race had it not been for the flood. And so God begins us again in the story of Noah and the story of Noah quickly unfolds. And this time around, I think perhaps learning from our last disastrous encounter, fighting one another, one to another, we became a unified force. And in that unity, you would think 
that we will have learned and that we will pursue God in his wonder now, but we do not do that. Do you know what our unity brings us? It brings us the same ideology that we bought, bought into in the Garden of Eden. We still believe the same thing. So we build a tower together, not a tower to honor God, a tower to honor us. And to say, look, we are bigger than God, better than God. We can get to God and we don't need God. And in that story, our unity displays itself in corruption and it will ultimately again lead to the same dark place we found ourselves before the flood. So God in his mercy rescues us from a journey into self-destruction again by dividing us into people groups and language groups so that we would not be unified in our corruption and that would slow the process. So what do we do once we are divided into language groups and people groups? We gather with our language group, our people group, and we war against the other people groups, right? It's what we do. And so if they have land we want, we go take it. We quickly figure out, don't, don't only take their stuff. If they're weaker than you, you can take them, then they can work for you, then you can have what you want. So we enslave each other. We war each other, we enslave each other. This is our human story unfolding, right? God, in His extraordinary mercy, to display to us a plan that He has had from the beginning of our corrupt story to bring us redemption, to rescue our souls, and to change our story, chooses for Himself a people group out of all those people groups that He might reveal Himself to that people group might guide them and protect them, and in so doing, reveal to all nations an extraordinary plan that he has in rescuing our human story. A plan that we could not have imagined had it not been revealed to us. So, he does not choose for himself a people group that is lording over another people group, though he could have. All people groups were corrupt, so it didn't matter which one he picked. He picked a people group that were at that time currently enslaved by another people group. The Egyptians held power over the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and God came and chose the Jewish people, and he chose them in slavery so that his first great act in moving in his people were to rescue them from slavery, from their oppressors. Because from the beginning, God's story was to us revealed, I am the redeemer that will set you free from the slavery in which you live. The tangible picture of that was the great supernatural move out of Egypt through the great plagues and the parting of the Red Sea into a land of promise, a land of freedom. And God uses that story to begin his journey with the Jewish people. Through multiple interactions with them, multiple encounters with them, multiple interventions for them over the next few decades and centuries, God begins to reveal to them who he is, who they are, and who we are as a human race. He demonstrates our corruption. He makes it clear through the law and the giving of the law he shows us the way to relationship with him that he begins to paint for us. In that journey, God also sees fit not only to interact with these people, but to make sure that those interactions are recorded so that they would be available to generations to come. 
because God knew that his plan unfolded over multiple generations. And so we so quickly forget if we do not record these things, we will not even know they existed. And we will not know God, for he will not be revealed. So the scriptures were born in the Old Testament as God allowed his interactions with us to be recorded for our sake. Now, in that journey, through setting up a recorded system and a process of remembrances, celebrations, for people to remember the stories, the Jewish people became very, very good at the retelling of the incredible stories of God so that through their people and for the world, the story of God would be known to all of mankind. And necessary, certainly, because God was preparing to send a redeemer that would change the whole story. Now imagine if all this backdrop I've just painted for you, uh, imagine if with that backdrop you were a young child in a Jewish home. You were about 10, 11, maybe 12 years old. You've grown up in that Jewish home and you are currently alive about a decade before Jesus comes to the planet. So the birth of Jesus has not happened. We don't know when it's going to happen. You are in a Jewish home. Perhaps you're growing up in the region of Jerusalem, perhaps just outside of Jerusalem, maybe even in the town of Bethlehem. And every night as you go to bed as an 11 or 12-year-old, as is tradition, your mom or dad would come into the room and tuck you in. And as they tuck you in, they would tell you a bedtime story, which is what we still often do today. Those bedtime stories told to you as a 10, 11-year-old, 10 years before Jesus came, were not just stories. They were carefully chosen stories from the revelation of Scripture because your parents, like you, knew Scripture well. And the best stories to tell were the real ones, not the pretend ones. So often you sat on your bed and you listened to the great stories of God's faithfulness and God's work through other human beings. Maybe you heard the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and how God played out in that story and used Abraham in such extraordinary ways as he believed God and followed. Maybe you heard the stories of the great man Moses and that was one of your favorites. You loved to hear of the great rescue that God effected for your people out of Egypt through a man Moses who had no business being used of God and yet he used him mightily. And you loved the plagues and the miracles that played out in that story. Maybe you heard of Joshua, the great conqueror that God used to lead the nation into the promised land and give them the freedom that God had said comes with a journey with me. Maybe you had heard about stories like Rahab, who wasn't even part of the people of God during that time, and yet God used her mightily, using human beings from all nations to do incredible things. Maybe you heard about people like Samson or Gideon or many others like it. And each time you heard these stories, each time you sat on your bed loving these stories again, your mom or dad would always close out the same way. These are men and women that God used mightily in their generation to be redeemers for the people of God, to demonstrate his faithfulness to all of us. And you would think to yourself, Perhaps in your generation, God might see fit to use you to be such a redeemer 
of the people of God, especially then because a decade before Jesus was coming, you were under Roman occupation and your people were enslaved and you wondered to yourself, who might God raise up to redeem us from our current bondage? And then your mom and dad would say to you, as they sat with you on the bed, they would say, but though God has mightily used these men and women, there is yet one to come. There is yet one to come. And the one that is to come in the future who will be our Messiah, he will be the full culmination of all of these stories. He will embody all of these redeemers. He will become the full fulfillment of all the promises. He will redeem his people once and forevermore. He will reign on the throne of David forever and ever, and to his kingdom there will be no end. He is yet to come, and we have yet not seen him. And it is he who we wait for. And you would sit on your bed and you would fall asleep, perhaps dreaming of the one who is to come. But as you sat there before you laid your head down on the pillow and you fell asleep, you might say to your mom or dad, as I would if I were 10 or 11 and they told me of this one to come, you might say, dad, mom, tell me, how will we know when he comes? How will we know what if he comes and we miss him? What if he comes and we don't see him? What if he comes and we never know? And with a smile on their face, your dad or mom might say, Honey, that's the beautiful thing about God. He has not left us to guess about who this one will be, but through the great prophets of old, he has revealed to us how we will know who this person is and what we will see in this person so that we can follow him and see him lead us into freedom. Do you remember the great prophet Isaiah? Let's, let's, and you might pull right off the shelf the scriptures and open them up and say, let's take a minute, it's past bedtime, but this is worth it. And you might turn to Isaiah and say, listen to what the great prophet Isaiah says. In Isaiah chapter nine, in uh, verse six, listen. He says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Honey, when this man comes, he will be born to us, for us. He will be a son given to us. And the weight of the world will be on him. You will know him because he will carry things none of us can carry. He will walk in ways none of us can walk. He will do things none of us can do because he will carry the weight of our slavery on his shoulders. And governments will be against him. We will know him. But more than that, he will go by these names. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He will bring to us peace as we have never known it. But that is not all the prophet told us. The prophet told us more. Listen to what the prophet says in chapter 53. The great prophet Isaiah in 53 tells us that this man, when we watch his life unfold, will be a man of great suffering, of great affliction, because the world will be against him. Listen to what it says. Verse 7 of chapter 53 of Isaiah says these words, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, 
And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By opposition and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And you might whisper as a dad to your lovely daughter on the bed, keep your eyes wide open that you not be among those that do not know and trust that he is the Messiah, because some apparently will. Let us not miss this one. And then listen, the prophet Isaiah tells us, though he will be a man of great suffering, he will also be a man of great power. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said in 61. Isaiah 61.1, listen to this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that, they may be that he may be glorified among them. Oh, this one, when he comes, we will know him, honey. But listen, long before we see his life unfold, long before we see him suffering under the affliction of governments, long before we see him uh, binding up the brokenhearted and setting the captives free, we will know who he is by the very birth that he will experience on this planet. See, the prophets have told us that this one who is to come, that he will be born of a virgin. The prophet Isaiah said it. He will be born of a virgin. Dad, how is that possible? That's the point, honey. It's not possible. That's how we will know that it's him. He will be born of a virgin. And on top of that, he will be born in the city of David. In the city of David. And not only will he be born in the city of David, as the prophet Micah told us he would, but the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah have told us he would be born of the line of David, which means, honey, if you think about it, that since he's born of a virgin, his dad would have to be of the line of David because that's how we track our lines, but his mom would have to be of the line of David because she is the only bloodline because the dad wasn't involved in the conception of this child. Two people married both from the line of David, born in the city of David, born of a virgin. And our great prophet Moses told us in Numbers that the heavens would declare the coming of the Lord because a star would appear at his birth. So many things to look forward to. And you would fall asleep dreaming of the coming Messiah, wondering if perhaps you would be lucky enough that in your very generation he might come. Here's the crazy part. If you were born into a Jewish home and about a decade before the coming of Christ, you were 10, 11, 12 years old, then when Jesus did come just a decade later, if you were in the city of Bethlehem, 
You grew up there. You were now in your late teens, maybe early 20s. You were hustling and bustling, probably with mom and dad, because it was a particularly busy day. Because Caesar had demanded a census across the nation and many had to travel to their town of their lineage so that they could be counted. And so Bethlehem had never seen such a crowd because many were of the line of David. And so they were coming to town and you were busy because you needed to help because mom and dad were panicked. And you were there helping. And if you happened to be in Bethlehem and you had heard these stories growing up and you had waited with all the longing of your heart that Jesus might arrive, I will tell you the truth that night you would have missed it. You would have missed it because you wouldn't have known of a woman coming into town late that night in labor already. Most were already asleep and everybody was full. Joseph panicking. They had traveled a long way because Mary and Joseph had to travel from Nazareth. So you wouldn't have known of them because they were in Nazareth, a little nothing town, long, long ways away. And they didn't have Facebook, so didn't travel. (laughs) And so you wouldn't have known that there was a virgin woman who had conceived a child. And you wouldn't have known that she entered into the city of David the very night that you were hustling and bustling to try to get things done. You wouldn't have heard that she was uh, put into a cave, a little warm cave, because there was no place in any of the homes or hotels that were available. Obviously, it was a busy night, and they were behind the curve. They came late. You wouldn't have heard the birth of a baby that night. You wouldn't have known the heavens declared the coming of the Messiah because that only happened in some fields outside of Bethlehem to some shepherds. It wasn't for the town. You would have slept that night dreaming of a coming Messiah as you had many nights before, never knowing that in your very city that very night, born was the one that had been promised. The shepherds would have come quietly and left quietly and you would have never known. You wouldn't have known that a star appeared in the east Because it wasn't for you, it was for some kings that had to travel with gifts that would be utilized for a big journey that this family would have to take to Egypt because of a madman that wants to kill a bunch of babies. You wouldn't have known that because the star wasn't for you. You would have slept peacefully that night, woken up the next morning, and never known that that very day the Messiah was born onto this planet. It would take you another three decades before you'd figure it out. Three more decades would go by, you'd be in your 40s, and rumors would start coming around Bethlehem that there was a man who was baptized by John, the great prophet, and at his baptism, God spoke from the heavens and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And you would think, could that be perhaps the Messiah? You would have heard some rumors later on that this man had moved through Nazareth and Capernaum and he was doing great miracles. You may have even heard in the rumors that while in his hometown of Nazareth, he declared the very passage out of Isaiah 61 saying, the one who this spoke of is here in your sight. And they try to kill him that day, but you may have heard about those rumors. You may have heard that the way he teaches is with such authority that he can only be someone that is a prophet from God. And remember, it had been 400 years since the last prophet had spoken. So even if he was just a prophet, that would be exciting. But maybe he was more. Perhaps because of your stage in life and your kids being grown, you in your mid-40s, maybe you thought to yourself, I'm an adventurous type. I'm gonna go and see what's going on. Because you'd heard he's coming through Jericho up the road into Jerusalem. So you go to Jerusalem, you catch him on the back end of his three years. Lots of rumors with this man. 
The governments are on his shoulders. He has faced much opposition from the Romans. He is meeting all of the criteria your mom and dad told you so many nights about, and you are beginning to believe that he could be the one. You meet him the very first time as he enters Jerusalem on a donkey, and they sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king has come. And you know then, your awakening takes place. You have just seen the Messiah. He dies on a cross, it's shocking. You wonder what that means, but then he rises from the dead and all your dreams come true and all the rumors are confirmed. You are among the 500 perhaps that see him the first time resurrected. See, for you, if you were a Jewish girl growing up a decade before Jesus and then were there when he came, your great awakening would have taken place when he was an adult. You would have known him to be Messiah through his life, his death, and his resurrection, not through his birth, because his birth was in silence. Only a few knew of the birth. But we are not Jewish people that grew up right before the coming of Jesus. We grew up in the 1900s and the 2000s. We grew up millennia after these events had taken place, and we have a luxury that she did not have, that we did not have to wait till his adult years to discover him as Messiah, because recorded by the great apostles, Matthew and Luke, some Mark and John, were the events that took place not in his life, but at his birth. And we are told in those great documents that when he was born, he was born of a virgin, that he was born in the town of Bethlehem, that he was born to the line of David through both his mom and his dad, that he was indeed the one declared from the heavens and a star appeared in the east that brought with it the kings that worshiped at his feet. We have that information and when we encounter the story of Jesus, we encounter our first wonder at the birth, not the death. So we rightly so, established an annual rhythm of celebrating his birth because it is where we come awake. It is where we recognize our Savior and where we begin to get stirred up about what the implications of that birth indeed are, not only to us, but to the whole human race. And so we celebrate each year the wonder of Christmas the celebration of the birth of the one who came, born of a virgin in the town of David, to a mom and dad in the line of David with a star that followed him. And that is but a scattering of the great prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So we come into Christmas with extraordinary opportunity. But we also come in with the potential to miss it. See that closet, that wardrobe, that Lucy walked into in the great story that C.S. Lewis writes. It could have just been a pretty cool wardrobe, couldn't it? Would that have not been enough? I mean, that was a pretty cool wardrobe. And if it had not been a doorway into a magical land of truths yet undiscovered, would it not have been an awesome hiding place? Would she not have called her brothers and sisters into the room and said, you gotta see this wardrobe? Would they not have clamored into it to experience the wonder inside the giant wardrobe with the coats where you could hide? Yes, they would have. And we could easily travel into Christmas and have the same thing. 
Is Christmas going to be fun? Yes. Have you hung your lights? Thank goodness, yes. Those lights from the dark place below the earth that you put up, and the second they're up, half of them die. They belong in the dark place. They're up. You're good. Your house is decorated. You're excited about the meals you will experience and the family that is to come, and you're going to go to. There will be presents under the tree, and Christmas carols are under all of the spaces in which music plays. The traditions of Christmas are around us. Everybody's getting excited, and it is a worthy holiday just to enjoy. And for those of us that know Christ, it is more than just that because it is also the birthday of Jesus. Maybe we'll have a cake. Maybe we'll sing. Maybe we'll blow the candles out. And we will say, isn't it fun to celebrate Jesus? And if we do that, we will have experienced a wardrobe, a very pretty wardrobe. We will have walked into it. We will have shown everybody what a cool hiding place it is for a great game of hide-and-go-seek. But Christmas was never meant to simply be a wardrobe. It was meant to be so much more. This wardrobe has no back to it. And if you keep walking backwards into Christmas, what Christmas becomes to you and I what it has the real potential to be is a reminder, an awakening to the great things we have discovered that were truths beyond our wildest imagination before we discovered them, and now that we know them, they shape and form everything about us. It is in the wardrobe, in the Christmas story, in the life and times of Jesus, in His death and resurrection, that we have discovered the one who came to rescue our souls to reshape our destinies, to change our lives, and to give us purpose and passion and future redemption beyond anything we could have ever imagined possible in a world of raw reality in which we still war against one another. And despite the warring against one another and the struggling with our flesh and the stuff that still goes on even among the people of God where we miserably fail at the great revelation we now have in the gospel, God's grace constantly whispers to us, I already knew you'd blow it. Despite your fragility, despite your insanity, I have used many and will use many again to fulfill the redemptive purposes I have and to that I will restore you, because I have rescued your soul. This Christmas has the possibility of becoming another space for you and I to enter into the gospel story, the one that came, to expect more this Christmas than our normal Christmases, because Christmas is an invitation, a wardrobe, a doorway, out of your day-to-day, out of my day-to-day, out of the ordinary, into the wonder of the story of God, the story of us. I pray for you, as I pray for my own heart, that this Christmas we would dare to expect more, that we would dare to anticipate more, that we would dare to ask for more revelation than we have ever had before. Not newness, but with fresh curiosity, a new stirring, a new experience of the depths and the wonders of the gospel. C.S. Lewis in his books that he wrote, the, the books that have Narnia involved in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he writes these words as a quote from one to another in the book. They are far, far better things ahead 
than any we leave behind. They are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. I pray that for your Christmas. I pray that for mine, that we together would discover this Christmas through the Christmas story far, far greater things than anything we have before and that they would be far greater than anything we have ever left behind. So, church, buckle up because into the wonder we will go. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the Christmas reality, for revealing to us, even though it was essentially in silence during the time it happened, because you recorded it through the wondrous apostles, revealing to us all of the beauty and wonder of the birth of Jesus, all of the prophecies that have been realized in him, all of the wonder that is his birth, that is his life, that is his death, and that is his resurrection, that is your redemption, your rescue of our souls. God, would you stir in us this Christmas with fresh curiosity, a brand new experience of the story of Christmas. That when we are done with this story this season, that we will walk out of this season feeling awakened again to the beauty of the gospel and the extraordinary implications it has in our lives to call us first into freedom and then to invite us into participation that we might too become redemptive on your behalf with all that we have and all that we are, that we might live our lives differently because we have seen your wondrous rescue. In view of your mercy, God, awaken us to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, for this is our spiritual act of worship. God, thank you for Christmas. We're super excited. We can't wait to see what we will discover behind the wardrobe in the magic of Christmas. We love you, Jesus. Amen.